Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual. Because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals. And recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. From the High Center Studios of Messiah College amidst the angry masses of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome, everyone, to episode 41 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Really excited about this episode. We got Drew in the studio. We got Abby LaBianca behind the glass. This is our episode on populism. This idea is just raging throughout our political culture right now. Drew, what comes to mind when you think about the term populism? What jumps into your head? I'm going to go home here for this one and say someone who just finished a comprehensive exam on the early republic, I'd have to say Andrew Jackson and the rise of the Democratic Party. I mean, yeah. I think when I, at least in my work, when I'm engaging, if I'm ever engaging with populism, that's where I'm going to be engaging. Yeah. And as our, as our guest today, Michael Kazin is going to say populism wasn't even a sort of political term back then, but certainly the, the idea of populism right. was certainly present. And I think that's in many ways why Donald Trump, or at least maybe Steve Bannon, I'm not mm-hmm. sure Donald Trump knows anything about Andrew Jackson. I think it was Steve Bannon who loved yeah. Andrew Jackson or inspired him to put that picture of Jackson up on the up on the wall in the in the Oval Office. This word populism, as we've already started discussing here, has a history. As some of you remember our episode one guest, Jim Grossman, the director of the AHA, American Historical Association, who has coined this hashtag on Twitter, hashtag everything has a history. 
So in order to help us get a better understanding of populism and how it's being used in our political culture today, we're going to think about the term today historically. Uh, and I can't think of a better guest to help us do it. Michael Kazin of Georgetown University is arguably the best historian of populism working today. I don't know if you're into American literary history. Most people don't realize Michael Kazin is actually the son of the famous Alfred Kazin, who mm. was a great cultural figure in the 19, I think the 1920s or 30s. Anyway, Kazin is with us. He will be on in a few minutes. As I told him during the interview, I, I've been a fan of his work for a long time. I read almost everything he writes because I think he has such a keen observation on contemporary affairs with a kind of historical inflection. So I'm, again, I'm really glad he's on the program today. As I go about my business as the producer of the podcast, you know, I talk to a lot of people um, about who we have lined up for future episodes. So you know you've made your mark on the profession when people express surprise that you are able to land such a big name. Michael yeah. Kazin is one of these people. I mean, we're yeah. telling people, oh, yeah, well, Michael Kazin is going to be joining us uh, this season. They're like, oh. You yeah. got Kaysen? Yeah, so, very, yeah. very prolific. And, you know, this is just, again, a great guest. Um, you know, Drew, as I study American history, I'm always struck how this umbrella term populism is so often used as a rallying cry for both those on the left and those on the right. I mean, it really sort of transcends political parties. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, in, in, in the 2016 election, we had Trump populism and we had Sanders populism, obviously. Enormous differences between both of these politicians, but both were propelled by their status as outsiders, albeit in very different ways. Trump was an outsider by virtue of his complete lack of previous <laughs> political experience, whereas Sanders was an outsider by virtue of his very long career in politics. But, of course, his career has been marked by the fact that he's remained an independent uh, so thus he wasn't beholden to the machinations of the Democratic Party. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's there's something that has drawn me to populism. As someone who grew up in the working class, I often find myself sympathetic to critiques of the elite or even the massive accumulation of wealth in such a small number of hands. We're doing this episode shortly after the Kavanaugh confirmation and the sort of populist came up in me during that, you know, because, you know, here's this Georgetown prep, right? Yale law school person of privilege. And, you know, I knew kids like that. They were the haves. And I grew up in the sort of have nots for the most part. So, the, you know, this sense of populist anger, if you will, came up when I saw Kavanaugh speaking, especially in that that second um, hearing. Um, at the same time, though, as someone who spent a good portion of my life gaining some level of expertise in a particular field, you know, in my case, obviously, American history, I find that the sort of leveling nature of populism and the disrespect or the the suspicion of experience and especially education or expert knowledge can also be very, very frustrating. I mean, exactly. If you look at the two frontrunners uh, of both respective parties at the onset of the 2016 primary season, you know, on the side of the Democrats, obviously Hillary prevailed. But when it came time for the general election, her legacy as a Clinton and the decisions she made, in other words, her experience, especially as a secretary of state, were ultimately yeah. a negative for her. And then on the Republican side, you have Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush campaign yeah. couldn't even get off the ground. A great example of this just recently happened to me. I'm Now, as we're recording this, we're in the middle of the second leg of the uh, Believe Me book tour, as we're calling it. And we've been going to colleges. And I was at a college recently where a guy stood up and questioned 
my knowledge of American history and said, you know, the hubris of you to ba- you know, make these arguments based upon what you see in the past. And later on, I found out, you know, I love IT guys. Some IT guys are some of my favorite guys here on the campus of Messiah. But there was this kind of populist rage that said, even though you've studied this stuff for 25 years, populism says, I know just as much about it as you do. And we're sort of on an even playing field. Now, just saying that makes me sound kind of elitist, right? But at the same time, I mean, you know, 25 years of training, you know, I think I do know something about this, maybe more than this, this guy who was grilling me with his questions might. So to me, there's two sides of the populist coin, right? You know, I, I get disgusted when I see people with privilege or as Bernie Sanders says, you know, the 1% controlling all the wealth. And, and then on the other hand, you know, as, and maybe I'm just being autobiographical here, right. And I'm dealing with my own demons or psychological (laughs) issues. But the other hand, you know, after 25 years of studying American history, I want some kind of uh, acknowledgement that I might have some expertise in this field and that expertise might contribute to the larger conversation. I think any historian right now can resonate with that. Look at look the work of our, our previous guest, Kevin Cruz. I mean, that, I mean, yeah, that, that, yeah. I mean he's, he's spending many of his free hours trying to convince yeah. People that Dinesh D'Souza doesn't actually know history. Well, I, love, I, love, I wish I had it in front of me. There's this famous tweet by Cruz where he says, um, I've spent my entire career in archives studying this stuff. And I'm armed with a lot of knowledge about this. Do you really want to take me on? It blows your mind. And, and to get back to the very question of politics, Hillary Clinton, as a secretary of state, made some very difficult decisions, some decisions that perhaps were incorrect. But just the fact that she was in that space, yeah. you know, making those decisions was really a negative for her when, right. when, when it came time for the campaign, you know, yeah. And yeah. without going too much into my own voting record or my own political allegiances in the, in the previous election, you know, I, I'm someone who valued experience and expertise and, and I was on the wrong side of that, yeah. uh, that yeah. election cycle. Yeah. Well, in a few minutes, we'll be hearing more of your thoughts on populism, and we'll also be talking to Michael Kazin, but now is the time for our paying the bills, the word from the sponsors. The Way of Improvement leads home as a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are also sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. History is a critical but often overlooked part of nurturing and developing vital communities. Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beattie and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. Over his 20-year career in nonprofits in the public sector, Bob Beattie has honed proven strategies to engage communities deeply in the work of history organizations and museums. Contact Bob at lindhurstgroup.org. That's L-Y-N-D-H-U-R-S-T group.org to learn how the Lindhurst Group can help you help make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. Finally, we need to welcome our newest gold sponsor, Margaret Graves. Thank you so much, Margaret, for joining us. Thank you for all that you are doing to keep this podcast moving forward. The mug is in the mail.
If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. And the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to take it to social media. So follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And consider giving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. We're also happy to announce that we are now available on Spotify. So it's even easier than ever to share a favorite episode with your friends or family or whomever. That's great news. Yeah, I'm really excited about both our sponsors. You know, someone who now has had, I got a 21-year-old who's a junior and now I got a 17-year-old. I mean, you know, I know a lot about colleges and universities. I don't think I'd be Jennings College consulting the sweet spot of their services. But in talking with my 17-year-old's friends, you know, they're not sure. They're asking me a lot of questions. I mean, more and more people are turning to these college advisors like Jennings College Consulting to help them. And then as far as the Lindhurst Group, I recently spent some time with Bob Beattie from the Lindhurst Group. If you have a museum or a historical society or you're thinking about a project to use history to engage with community affairs and community issues, hire Bob Beattie. He's got a lot of energy. He's got all kinds of connections in the field. And the Lindhurst Group will certainly be able to help you with your needs. Well, before we get to our interview with Michael Kazin, you have some thoughts about your favorite populist. William Jennings Bryan is one of my favorite populists. If you come into my office at Messiah College, you will find a framed sketch of a full body profile of Bryan standing in a three-piece suit with tails and a bow tie, hands in his pocket, longish hair, seemingly ready to come face-to-face with the latest threat to American culture. The sketch is titled The Commoner, and it appeared in Harper's Weekly in 1906. I like Brian not necessarily because I believe everything that he stood for, but because he represents an era of evangelical political engagement that is so different than it is today. Let's not make any mistake about William Jennings Bryan. He was a fundamentalist. He believed America was a Christian nation and needed to reflect Christian values. He was a churchman and a denominational leader who fought for fundamentalist control of the Presbyterian church during the fundamentalist modernist controversies. He was, as our guest Michael Kazin had described him, a godly hero who traveled the country preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Brian was no fiscal conservative. As an economic populist and an agrarian, he challenged what today might be called trickle-down economics and wealthy corporations and Robert Barons who exploited American farmers and other workers. As a crusader against corporate power, Jennings is best known for his famous cross of gold speech. As a Nebraska congressman, he delivered the speech at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago on July 9, 1896. The speech was a defense of bimetallism or the monetization of silver. Jennings believed that the use of gold and silver as American currency would help cash strapped farmers by bringing more money into circulation. Some say it was the greatest speech in American political history. One reporter wrote that the speech, quote, came like one great burst of artillery, unquote. Another reporter observed that people in hearing Brian speak flung their coats high in the air in jubilation. 
The next day, the Democratic Party picked Bryan as its nominee for the 1896 presidential race. Later in life, William Jennings Bryan would go into studios and record his famous Cross of Gold speech. In 1896, there was no recording devices to be able to preserve the speech. But because the speech was so important, Bryan went into these studios and gave the speech over and over again so that future Americans could listen to his words and his ideas in this very populist manifesto. So we thought you would enjoy listening to a short excerpt from William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech. I hope you enjoy it. I come to speak to you in the defense of a cause as holy as the cause of liberty, the cause of humanity. Mr. Carlyle said in 1878 that this was a struggle between the idle holders of idle capital and the struggling masses who produce the wealth and pay the taxes of the country. They tell us that the great cities are in favor of the gold standard. We reply that the great cities rest upon our broad and fertile prairies. Burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again as if by magic. But destroy our farms, and the grass will grow in the streets of every city of the country. We care not upon what line the battle is fought if they say bimetallism is good but that we cannot have it until other nations help us we reply that instead of having a gold standard because england has we will restore bimetallism and then let england have bimetallism because the united states has if they dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standard as a good thing we will fight them to the uttermost having behind us the producing masses of this nation and the world, supported by the commercial interests, the laboring interests, and the toilers everywhere, we will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Michael Kazin is a professor in the Department of History at Georgetown University. He is an expert in U.S. politics and social movements in the 19th and 20th centuries. His most recent book is War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918, which was named an editor's choice by the New York Times Book Review. Kazin is also the editor of Dissent, a leading magazine of the American left since 1954. He is also the author of A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan, which was named one of the best books of the year by several newspapers and magazines, America Divided, The Civil War of the 1960s, now in its fifth edition, which was named one of the best books of 2000 by the Washington Post, and The Populist Persuasion, An American History, first released in 1995 with Basic Books. We are thrilled to have historian Michael Kazin from Georgetown University with us today to talk about the very interesting history of populism. Thanks for coming on the show, Michael. Great to be here. Now, let's start, you know, our our listeners are not scholars of populism, and we use this term a lot, and I'm not sure a lot of Americans really know the historical roots or the meaning of the term. So this might be a little elementary, But we're hearing all about populism these days, and we're trying to make sense of populism, particularly in the age of Trump. What, in a nutshell, is at the heart of American populism? What binds all these populist movements together? Um, Or is there anything that binds them together? 
Well, people can define the term very differently. And of course, its term is used a lot these days to talk about conservative populists in Europe. Uh, populism is sort of the uh, <laughs> the term of the moment, it seems, right, at least right. when people talk about politics. Um, you know, I think uh, there are some similarities between American populism and other populisms. But to me, it's a very promiscuous term. Uh, by that, I mean, in, in reality, that is, it's for me, it's really primarily a way of talking about politics, sure. uh, the way of sort of praising ordinary people um, as a sort of noble uh, group of folks who aren't defined narrowly by their class interests, um, but as all moral, virtuous, hardworking, very often God-fearing, patriotic. And they uh, have opponents in the elite. It can be a governmental elite, a cultural elite, economic elite. And they usually view those opponents as uh, self-serving, as uh, undemocratic at their core. So it's very much, I think, a, a way of bonding together ordinary people, at least those who consider themselves to be ordinary people, sure. uh, against a self-serving elite. And so, as you can tell from you know that kind of opposition, you know, it can serve different political causes. I mean, I would say different ways. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, who agree about nothing, right. <laughs> can both be considered populist in the sense they both use a language which uh, talks this way, uh, which conceives of the people one way and the elite in a different way. Uh, even though one of them is a United States senator, the other one is a, is a billionaire. Uh, right, right. So I think it's uh, that's how I see it. No, sure. you know, there are people who define populism differently. There are people in Europe who define populism as a, as a way of governing in an authoritarian way. Uh, and it can be defined that way, too. But for American history, I think it's best to define it, you know, sort of loosely as a, a language of the people against the elite. OK. Now, I was first exposed to your work with the populist persuasion. I actually read it in grad school. It was on my reading list. And then, you know, my favorite work of yours is uh, your biography of William Jennings Bryan. I just love that book. I've actually read it twice now. A Godly Hero. Can you point to some moments over the course? So where does the term originate? And then can you point to some kind of populist moments? Uh, what are the big two or three or four kind of populist moments in, in American political history? Wow. Well, uh, if you can even. For, yeah. Yeah. First, thanks a lot for reading my book twice. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've read it a lot of times, but I sort of have to. And every time I read it, of course, like any author, yeah, I say, oh, can't believe I wrote that sentence that right. way. Oh, <laughs> anyway, um, Hard to, hard to point to a lot of, to just two or three populist moments. Right. Um, I mean, my understanding of American populism is it's essential to what it means to do American politics in many yeah. ways. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard to think of moments, in fact, where people who are sort of proud of being part of an elite were uh, elected uh, to run the country or elected even to be senators from uh, major states, uh, especially since uh, the 1830s when uh, we had universal white men who suffrage in right. this country. Uh, really, since then, you know, we're a small d democratic uh, political system, obviously. And say you are not running in the interest of the majority of the people and you don't have a sense, whether explicitly or implicitly, of an enemy at the top of society, uh, it's difficult to um, get very far, I think. Now, of course, there are moments like uh, the 1890s when Brian. Right. Uh, became uh, uh, ran his first candidate for uh, for the president for the first nomination for his first race for the presidency 1896, where he ran a very explicit campaign against 
Uh, you might see the money changers that right. got into the temple, uh, went against the gold standard, uh, big bankers, the money power, uh, the large industrial corporations, running the interests of, of uh, laborers and small farmers, uh, debtors against creditors and so forth. That's one important moment, certainly. Um, 1930s, you can argue, is another important moment when another Democrat, Franklin D. Roosevelt, in the uh, first getting elected president during the Great Depression, 1932, uh, was running against, again, big business, uh, an economic elite. But arguably, uh, conservatives have uh, been successful in the last few decades, certainly since the 1960s, uh, running against the political elite, in right. some degree, uh, a, a cultural elite. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, runs against, and conservatives generally run against the mainstream media, sometimes against People who teach in elite universities, uh, like Georgetown, where I teach, and Ivy League schools, and Stanford and Berkeley and so forth. So conservatives have been able to use this language just as much as liberals uh, had before. Is the 1896 election of Bryan, is that the first time we see the word in American political discourse? Or does it go back earlier than that? Oh, yeah. Actually, I, I forgot to answer your first question yeah, there. Yeah. It's actually an American word at its, at its uh, origin. The best story I've heard about this, though some people disagree uh, and find other sources, in 1890, uh, there was a People's Party in Kansas right. that uh, elected uh, the state government in Kansas. And newspaper man who had some Latin in his education, which uh, most people who were educated then did, asked a Kansas People's Party representative, well, what what's the adjective here? What do you call mm-hmm. your party? Uh, mm-hmm. you know, the Democratic Party, Republican Party, these are adjectives. Uh, you can't call it the uh, Peopleist Party. Right. Um, why don't you call it the Populist Party? Because populist, of course, is uh, Latin for people. So uh, that's the best origin okay. story I, I know of. So it's a relatively new term, relatively yeah. speaking, yeah, in 1890s. American politics, 1890s. 1890s. Um, now, you can, now, you can argue that there were, of course, as I said before, a lot of American politicians who, who were speaking populism sure. before the term was coined, like Andrew Jackson. Right. Like. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I went back and pulled off my shelf the populist persuasion, and I reread your introduction. You say in that introduction, American populism binds even as it divides. Now, I think... Most people who are in our current moment would see the way populism, at least Trump's populism, sort of divides us. But in what ways through American history or or even today uh, has populism bound us together as a nation? That would be an interesting thing to hear your take on. So could you elaborate on that about? uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah, I I know when you asked me that question uh, before uh, we started the interview um, on email, I had to think, oh, huh. 20 years ago or 30. (laughs) uh, Well, I wrote the book in 1995. Getting at there, I think, is that you know American popular speakers, from whatever uh, ideological persuasion, I think, um, tend to argue that they are arguing for an, the American ideal right. of uh, the people should rule, and of course they have definition, definitions of who the people are very often, and uh, different purposes uh, to which they want the people to to rule. Uh, uh, different things they want, you know, government in the people's name to do, but I think they all pretty much agree that American ideals of equal opportunity, of individual freedom, um, of a kind of small Republican virtue, uh, we all we all share these ideals. Supposedly, uh, it's just a, a self-serving elite at the top which is betraying them. 
So in that sense, I think populism at its best, and even that's worse sometimes, um, is a way of binding uh, or rebinding uh, Americans to the national ideals. But again, uh, not not saying that uh, we're all in this together, but saying that most of us uh, agree yeah. with these ideals, know what they mean, but this elite is dragging us down. Our elite is is betraying uh, what the country should stand for and making those ideals very hard to uh, to be realized. Sure. So I think that's what I was getting at there. That uh, you know, unlike a lot of nations where their definition of the people is 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 historical, is ethnic, uh, or religiously exclusive. Of course, our American ideals, to the extent that Americans still believe in them, sometimes I doubt, but. The ideals are, I think, very universal ideals. Uh, these are universal to everyone who lives in the country, uh, and so they have one who's a citizen of the country. And so, I think that's you might say all Americans are created equal. Right. So, so I think that's what I meant by that binding uh, sentence. So after we think it, maybe because obviously we're in a situation now where populism certainly divides as well. Well, certainly as a rhetorical strategy, right? You saw, say, in 2016, Bernie Sanders, right? The the one percent, or if you want, he never talked about the 99 percent. It was always the one percent. So there was this kind of populist assumption that the 99 percent of Americans are bound together by getting screwed by the you know by the corporation. And so forth. So certainly, as a rhetorical strategy, it's a kind of binding. Although, of course, not everybody bought into uh, Sanders. But that's that's interesting. When I think of populism, I immediately turn my attention to Andrew Jackson, and which then immediately turns my attention to uh, populism and how populism was, in many ways, bolstered by Indian removal. And so, I, in that sense, populism is is often portrayed as a white movement. Has this always been true? Do you, do you know of examples in American history when populism was perhaps not just a white movement? But on the other hand, what has been the uh, racial dimension of populism here in the United States? Well, of course, uh, I differentiate between populism as a language and populist movements, right. uh, yeah. which uh, aren't always the same thing, of course. But, um, well, of course, you know, a lot of this depends on how you define the people. And as you know, Andrew Jackson in a, you know, essentially defined the people as, as only white people. Right. And, and, of course, that left out not just Native Americans, but uh, African Americans. And, um, and there is, I think, a built-in problem here because – if you're talking about the great majority, the 99%, throughout American history, of course, the, the great majority have been white. And you have, uh, in the first, arguably, you know, mass political party in the history of the world, Democratic Party, I'm writing history of the Democratic Party right now, was a party which, at the same time as they successfully helped all white men to get the right to vote, they made it much harder for free black men in the North, uh, where they were free uh, to have the right to vote. So, so uh, this is a tension always. People's Party, the original populist in the 1890s, did uh, try to, and to some degree successfully, at least for a while, were able to uh, appeal to and recruit uh, African-Americans in states like Texas and Georgia, especially. Uh, the populists at a time when most white Democrats were trying to stop blacks from voting, uh, the populists supported black voters, at least for a while. But, you know, it was always a problem, you know, if you're a part of a racial minority, especially a, a minority uh, which is being, you know, kicked out of your, uh, of your ancestral lands and, uh, uh, and killed if you don't go along with uh, what the majority wants, then populist language is going to be uh, uh, used in oppressive ways, I think. But I do, I do think that 
any movement which is going to, or any party which is going to build a durable uh, majority or win major demands, especially economic demands, uh, it's going to have to speak in some ways in, in, in populist terms. And I think it has uh, throughout, mo- throughout most of American history. Yeah, very interesting. Um, many of our listeners, Michael, are, are some of our listeners are people of religious faith, people interested in the history of religion in America. I'm, I do a lot of work in American religious history. Um, how has populism been connected with Christianity in American history? Can you think of some examples in which there's this kind of fusing of religious uh, or Christian nationalist kind of ideas with a populist impulse you know, throughout the late 19th or 20th century? Well, as, as, as you mentioned my biography of Brian, right, Brian's right. obviously a great example. He, he believed, and understandably, that a majority of the population were evangelical Protestants. Right. Um, he was a Presbyterian himself, and believed that um, it was in the interest of the majority um, of people to have a more moral republic, uh, he defined a more moral republic as a republic in which uh, corporations would be reined in, in which uh, labor would uh, receive much better compensation, in which there'd be uh, more regulation of big business uh, and more public uh, utilities and so forth. But he was also connected to the prohibition movement right. and was a big supporter of it, uh, especially after he stopped running for office. Um, and uh, the prohibition movement, I think, too, I write about this in, in, in the populist persuasion, I think, you know, used a lot of populist language. They really yeah. talked about, and of course, as, as most of your listeners probably know, the prohibition movement was a, you know, very much a Protestant movement, especially in its major, major, um, most of its leaders, both women and men, were members of evangelical churches, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterian, especially Baptist. And so I, I think uh, in that sense, too, the prohibitionists made their case um, saying that in order to have a, uh, a more moral republic, it was necessary to, to uh, compel people to restrain their selfish, um, uh, exploitative impulses, uh, which they thought is what got triggered by, by drinking alcohol. And they also connected that to business. The, they talked about yeah. the, the liquor trust which was uh, corrupting uh, working people by uh, uh, enticing them to spend their hard-earned money on liquor instead of to take money home to their wives and their children. And Brian very much bought into that way of talking about things. And also, you know, Gordon Wood in his book about uh, one of his books about early America talked about how America got democratized and got evangelized pretty much the same period, right. in the antebellum period. I'm not saying all democratization is is, is populist, um, but there's certainly a, a connection, certainly, between people uh, forming their own churches, putting on, you know, having having big camp meetings, yeah. uh, the enthusiasm, the revivalist enthusiasm of, of uh, American Christianity, much of it in the 19th century, and the rise of populist movements. What do we do with that, your explanation of Brian? Because the categories that you describe in that book, trying to understand Brian in his times, right? Very progressive. You know, I think at one point you call Brian a sort of agrarian, I can't remember the exact phrase, like an agrarian radical almost or something, you know, but yet kind of you have the creationism and the prohibition and so forth. The categories are just, you know, the, the sort of parties or the ideas coming together under one party or man is just such a different set of categories than, say, the Christian right today or economic progressives or socialists who might have little interest in evangelical religion. So 
what do you, what do you make of that? What do you make of the the way in which there's such different alliances, ideological alliances in Brian's day? And have you looked at all into the kind of development of the change where most people like who believe what Brian believes today religiously are champions of free markets, trickle down economics, you know, and so forth? Yeah, well, I think it's a complicated. I know complicated, it is. Yeah, for that change, of course. I mean, a lot of it has to do with with liberals, uh, liberal Democrats, especially becoming more uh, secular. With uh, uh, many by the 1930s, uh, you had you had Jews like my parents uh, yeah. uh, being uh, rather secular Jews. You know, being the sort of intellectual core of the Democratic Party, at least the important part of the intellectual core, and that was a big change right. as well. You know, I think Brian's. Even though he was a fundamentalist, uh, yeah. famously in the Scopes trial, he you know, he he some he fumbled uh, right, defending right. Uh, the literal truth of the Bible uh, when Clarence Darrow, um, of course, examined him. But for him, I think he he said he he said uh, rather consistently that for him, Christianity to be real Christianity had to be what he called applied Christianity. Yeah. That is, uh, it wasn't just a matter of uh, individual uh, Christians uh, trying to understand their sinfulness right. and uh, uh, trying to win people uh, to Jesus. Uh, to be a true Christian, you had to go out there and and and, and solve the problems of the world, heal the world. Uh, so he was uh, theologically conservative, but I think um, yeah. uh, in many ways. But uh, but he was also a social gospeler. You know, yeah, at a time yeah. many social gospelers were, as you know, uh, much more you know liberal theologically than he was. Right, right. So, and then also, look, he was a politician, and his base were people who were hurting from um, I think the. Uh, uh, the overwhelming power of corporate America. Uh, he was something of a pacifist, but not a complete pacifist, and that put him on the left of American politics uh, at the time, too. Uh, so, of course, as you know, as a historian, uh, religion and politics have to be understood in their specific historical context. And and he found allies on in, in reform circles. Uh, he yeah. worked closely with Catholics uh, and with Jews as well. Uh, some of his best friends were Catholics and Jews, and some of his closest political allies were Catholics and Jews. So, you know, the big change, of course, is also that... Uh, uh, issues like uh, same-sex marriage and uh, abortion didn't exist as issues right. uh, yeah. back then. So if he had to, if he had to grapple with those issues, uh, who knows where it would have come down? Yeah. They, 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 they weren't issues. My question always is, you know, like where are the William Jennings Bryans today in religion and political discourse? Because it is a, it is a combination that you don't see very much, except for maybe some on the kind of evangelical left today that you often. Uh, run into, which have, which they have never really gotten traction in the evangelical church. Well, we have time for, we have time for one more question, Michael. I want to, obviously you can never take your historian cap off, but you're also the editor of a magazine, Dissent, right? Which has been a voice of the left for a long time. Um, let me, let me ask you to speak now as a cultural critic, as a contemporary observer <laughs> of contemporary life. Again, I don't think you can ever take your history hat off in doing that, but is populism a way forward for the United States. I mean, we see what the Trump populism has done, but in other words, is there any way we can draw from populism in a way that is useful to, for lack of a better phrase, the cultivation of a democratic society or a just society? I mean, does populism have anything to offer us as a way forward? I think so. Of course, the populism I think uh, we should be using and developing is a populism more of the democratic left, right, not a populism right. of the of the right. 
I mean, Bernie Sanders had his problems, but I think he did point to real problems. I think uh, using populist language, you can talk about how uh, people who work very hard for a living, sometimes two or three jobs, uh, don't make enough money, while as, you know, people who are able to have big investments and, uh, and run companies make far more money than uh, the ordinary person does. Uh, and that's unjust, I think. Uh, and also, I think we can talk about, uh, in populist ways, the... Uh, the need to get big money out of politics yeah. uh, as much as possible. Uh, so I think, you know, the way the original People's Party talked, a lot of times Bernie Sanders uh, gives speeches, and I think uh, his speeches would resonate with the original populists in the 1890s in many ways, even though he's a secular Jew and the most of the original populists were actually evangelical right. uh, Protestants. Right. Uh, so I think, as I said before, I think it's hard to get populist talk out of American politics, out of American history and out of American politics today, too. So it's not surprising that, that people keep returning to it, that Donald Trump yeah. got the Republican nomination by being a very entertaining <laughs> populist performer. And I think that's, um, fortunately or unfortunately, going to be true of, the, uh, of our history going forward as well. Yeah, I have a copy here of the paperback version of uh, the 1990, would have been 98 paperback version of The Populist Persuasion. Tell me just, you know, autobiographically or or in terms of your your work, has there been a call for, you know, a third edition or uh, do we need another reprint of The Populist Persuasion here in light of our current moment? Actually, last year, the Cornell University Press, uh, not exactly third edition, okay. but I, uh, a new edition with a new cover with silhouettes of both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump okay. on the cover with a new preface, which I wrote, okay. so, which, which brings things up to at least last year. I should have done my homework on that. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Michael, thanks so much for coming on. We've been talking to Michael Kazin from Georgetown University, probably our foremost authority on the history of of populism in America. I am such a big fan of your work and it's been great to have you on the show. So thanks for your willingness to come on and take some time out of your busy schedule. Thanks very much. Okay, Michael, have a great day. We'll tell you what, John, Michael Kazin has been an important historian for you and your own intellectual development. I'm a little bit newer to his work because uh, I haven't studied that later period of U.S. history with the same depth that you have. But what a wonderful interview, wonderful opportunity to talk about this subject that is just so relevant to how we think about politics in the current moment. Yeah, I mean, I said this in my commentary, and we talked a little bit about it as well. If you're going to read one book by Kazin, well, you need to read two books by (laughs) Kazin. And I, I mentioned both of them in the interview. His biography of William Jennings Bryant was, for me, one of the most rewarding biographies I think I've ever read, because he is not a historian of American religion, but he understands and read the right things and got up to speed with American religious history. And he really situates Brian in that kind of fundamentalist world of the early 20th century, really. So it always just amazes me, and I asked him this in the interview, always just amazes me the way in which conservative Protestants today are so tied, you know, those on the religious right are so tied to free market economics and capitalism. While Brian, you know, it's like one step above being a socialist. I mean, and he was, he was more conservative theologically even than some of the Christian right today. So that's, it's just strange bedfellows. And it once again plays to this idea we talk about a lot that Don't take the categories of the past and try to superimpose them on the present. And then there's this kind of, where are the William Jennings Bryans in the evangelical church today? 
whatever you think of Brian's theology, his fundamentalist theology and his sort of half-baked anti-intellectual creationism, which was exposed during the Scopes trial in 1925, he does apply his faith to economic matters in a way that seems much more consistent with Christianity, the teachings of Jesus, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. So I I really, really appreciate Godly Hero, his biography of Jennings Bryan. And then I'm so glad to hear that populist persuasion is coming back or has come back in a new edition because, you know, that's why we had him on the show. I mean, this is another populist moment that we're in. And I know of no better person in Kazan to kind of historicize this moment and make us think more deeply and critically about the populism that we see in Trump's presidency. I mean, it's interesting you say that about where is William Jennings Bryan. And, you know, I, I can actually still remember my first exposure to William Jennings Bryan as a figure was was from you when I was a student here at, yeah. at Messiah, because this is something that you've been thinking about and wrestling with for a long time as both a scholar and as a person. You know, I do think you do see those kinds of voices, theologically conservative, economically liberal voice. But I think today it's predominantly in the black church, right? You know, that's true. And and you see that with the Moral Monday movement coming out of out of North Carolina. We we see those voices, but I'm trying to be careful here because there's a lot of tricky politics to this. I don't want to say it's limited to just one community because I think it is it is especially right now as people are becoming increasingly frustrated with how closely aligned white evangelicals have decided to become with Trump. I think some of the progressive theology of, well, you you don't get to, you can't really call it progressive theology because it, in many ways it's much more theologically conservative than I am. Yeah. I mean, there's a sense too, in which you do see some of this within the Roman Catholic church. Yeah. You know, all the progressives in the Catholic church love Pope Francis because he has a progressive political agenda, if you will. Well, it's, it's, I want to call it, it comes out of Catholic social teaching. Even John Paul II and Benedict, right? John Paul II used to talk about savage capitalism, right? The way capitalism, when it gets too out of control, capitalism respects the dignity of human beings to be able to create and innovate and so forth. But when it gets out of control, it can undermine things like family and community and, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Maybe Catholic social teaching might be a model of, you know, where Brian... Now, Brian, of course, would think all Catholics are going to hell and, you know, the Pope was the Antichrist and, you know, on and on and on. So, like, it's just so straight when you, you know, when you go, the past is a foreign country. When you go back there and try to superimpose your present day categories on on 1920s, it's just not going to work. He saw prohibition as... I mean, I'm sure he was concerned about people getting drunk, right? But he was also like, this is a way to stick it to the capitalists by not having you drink their product. And you'll, so there's so much there that's so different from today, especially those within the evangelical world, but even those within the more socialist, economically progressive world who want to communicate these ideas and get people to think about how just different the past was in a lot of these ways and looking for outlets to do that. Churches and community centers and community organizers and so forth. You know, history is a great way to reflect on these kinds of things. And, and that's why I love what the Lindhurst Group is doing. They're trying to get us to complicate the narrative a little bit. 
Bob Beatty's the kind of guy who will come into your historical society or your union hall or your church or whatever it might be and say, you know, what if we spend some time like with an exhibit, try to reflect deeply on where we've been as well as where we are in the present moment and how the past might serve the present in unexpected places. So check out the Lindhurst Group if you're interested, especially if you're interested in this intersection of economic populism and uh, Christianity. And this is the kind of work that they do. And we're thrilled to have them as our sponsor. Well, that's our episode for today. Hope you enjoyed it. I know we did. It was great having Michael Kazin on. And we hope to see you next time. But in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Michael Kazin. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling, and your host is John Fia. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.